I'm Chris Lundstrom, and this is the Food About Town podcast. Well, as a quick prelude to this episode with uh, with Ben Turiano and was it Ben Ben Weiner? Ben Weiner? I forget Ben Ben Turiano. Weiner. Ben Weiner. Weiner. Yeah, it's it's been a little while since I since I listened to this. Um, this episode was recorded a little while back around the grand opening of Joe Bean Coffee and was recorded with one of their partners, Gold Mountain Coffee. So just a little while back, we're recording uh, this little intro in the time of the coronavirus and want to give uh, Ben an opportunity to talk about what they're working on right now and just chat with him for a minute with some modern stuff before we get into this still very informative uh, coffee sourcing discussion. So Ben, how's everything going right now? Uh, you know, it's going relatively well, all things considered. It's definitely been a uh, a weird shift in what normal life is looking like, but we're making it work and, you know, chipping away, staying busy. Yep. We've, uh, we've had to shut down our bar, which is a big bummer. Um, so pretty much the entirety of our life now is just, online ordering we do like a coffee subscription program um but people have been super supportive and we've been keeping really busy and yeah so all things considered doing well but uh yeah you know <laughs> it's yeah so first let's let's talk about how people can still get joe bean coffee how can you get, there's a few different ways they can get roasted coffee at this point so uh, how can people grab your products uh, JoeBeanRoasters.com, uh, Perpetual Joy is our coffee subscription program. We do either uh, an option to mail it directly to you, or if you live locally, you can select a local pickup option as well. Um, we do have bags on the shelf in our store as well. Um, so if you're wanting to do, like, just stop and grab a bag real quick. Um, but I would say 95% of our orders are all online and if you do want local pickup we do offer curbside as well so you can just text us and we'll bring it out to you yeah and it's even if you do go in i've been in it a couple of times because i'm in the neighborhood it's you can go in and basically touch nothing but the coffee bag and walk out so it's it's as easy as you can do yeah we've tried to make it as uh streamlined and you know as minimal contact as possible keep everyone safe and healthy yeah so, well, currently there is some there are some spectacular coffees I've had recently just for me. Like this is still like great sourcing and some fantastic coffees. The one I'm excited to try is this new one from the Congo that you have out right now. Yeah, you and everyone else, man. <laughs> I cannot keep up with orders on it. That's awesome. Uh, which is awesome. I wish I had plan my purchasing on a little bit differently. I think I'm going to sell out before the next bag drops in, but uh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I'm excited about that one. That This is a new purchase for us. Um, it's kind of a unique uh, unique offering. It's like a vertically owned uh, coffee farm. And then the way that they set it up is they have Grunga uh, Coffee Company, is like the in Congo company that's coordinating everything. But then they own a few different mills throughout the country. So then local farmers around each mill are interfacing and bringing cherry there. Um, 
yeah, the coffee's been fantastic. They are really cool organization and they're doing a lot to uh, provide access to resources that people might not have. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of political challenges in that part of the world. Um, and because it's such a unstable environment there, uh, coffee doesn't always even make its way out of the country. So for coffee to make its way out and be available to us is really cool and exciting. And we're hoping to keep working with these guys. But uh, again, it's unclear how frequently this opportunity will be yeah. uh, presenting itself. Especially at, a, yeah, especially at a high specialty level like the stuff you're bringing in right now. Yeah, I mean, that part of the world, uh, they have a lot of political challenges. There's a lot of uh, infrastructure challenges. Uh, you know, they're landlocked, which is really challenging as well. Um, but the land is like so suited for coffee. So even if you're not able to use all of the most like up-to-date modern farming techniques, it, the, just the quality that comes out of there just naturally because coffee loves that environment so much is really difficult to compete with. Um, that's one thing that they do have going for them is that the quality is just consistently really spectacular. I'm super excited. I will I will likely see you a little bit later today. So, <laughs> um, so uh, just to touch on, I don't want to focus on negatives, but sounds you know I saw there was a a break in recently at your place, which is an unfortunate thing to happen, especially in times like this when we're all working around things. Um, but seems like you recovered pretty quickly and got things fixed, but I don't know. Yeah. Just... Yeah. We're bouncing back. It, it sucks. Yeah. And it, it uh, it kind of gets in your head a little bit, you know, it does, uh, but you try and focus on the fact that this is one person doing one negative thing and you have all these other people that are being super positive and supporting and you try and focus on the good rather than the bad. Um, and I know we're not unique in getting robbed. Uh, from what I understand, that's a phenomenon that's been happening more frequently uh, during this pandemic, which is, you know, disappointing. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, people, unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately not surprising not to get into political things, but when people are desperate, you know, worse things happen. So it's hopefully hopefully not happening as much as we, as much as it can. So. Yeah. I don't know if it's desperate or if just opportunistic. Yeah. Uh, hard know, to say. Not a, not a headspace I live in. So it's yeah. hard to understand specific motivations. Yeah. Agreed. Um, um, well on the positive side, I know you, uh, you and Joe Bean are doing more outreach to people with, uh, other things. I saw you recording a few little, a few videos talking about, talking about Joe Bean and other things. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're trying, man. It's, <laughs> it's weird not like seeing humans. Yeah. Right. We're trying to maintain some sort of contact. Um, so yeah, we've been doing videos. A thing that we're trying to make a bigger effort with is doing live streams with uh, a lot of our producing partners. 
that we've been doing. We just did a live stream with Ben Weiner last Monday. I think we're going to try and do that every Monday. Awesome. Um, and it looks like we're going to have one with Christian Starry from Free Trading Company in Guatemala. Uh, I think Ricardo and I are going to jump on a call. Uh, Ricardo from Tepper Events Day in Costa Rica. Um, and then I've got a few other reach outs too. So we'll see. We'll see what pans out. But that's a cool way to like stay connected with people across really long distances. And, yeah. Uh, and it's important, uh, uh, you know. We're not the only ones being affected by this whole pandemic. And I know really challenging thing for a lot of people on the producing side is that we've been lucky in that our online program has been like blown up. We've been really well supported by people. So we're maintaining all of our contracting commitments. A lot of roasters, especially if you're more dependent on just like beverage sales, uh, they're pulling out a contract. So you have all these farmers that are either just finishing up harvesting or they're just starting that process. And they're kind of looking and saying, all right, well, I've got all this stuff. I'm ready to bring to market or I will be bringing to market soon. And now I don't have anyone who's lined up to purchase it. So what, what am I, what's going on? And especially people, if they haven't started picking yet, they want to make that choice like, well, how many pickers do I hire and what percentage of my crop do I dedicate towards high cupping stuff versus maybe I should go the cheaper route and sell more commercial grade coffee and take a hit that way, but at least know that it can move a little bit better. The sea is bouncing back up after it's been down for a really long time. Um, as stuff's getting more unstable, a lot of people are looking at commodity as a, a safer thing to invest money into. Yeah. Um, so, you know, commercial grade stuff is slightly more valuable than it was, you know, a few months back. Um, so I don't know. It, it's a weird, it's a weird, scary time for a lot of people. Yeah. All the way down the supply chain. Yeah. I mean, it's, it truly is global and there's areas that haven't got hit as hard yet, but as of now, it's only a matter of time. So it's, you know, I'm sure we'll see wide ranging effects all over all of our supply chains around the food and food and beverage industry from coffee to everything else. So oh, for sure. For sure. Um, anyways, <laughs> so I think what I'd want to end on is I'm always really happy to see great products still coming out of Joe Bean. I'm obviously around a lot, but it's, I've been home drinking coffee almost every day and being able to engage with this on an everyday basis. I am consistently impressed and always happy to try the new things. So uh, for everybody who's out there at home, brewing coffee by hand, learning how to do that better, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, if you want to try out some of the uh, best beans in Rochester and best beans in the country, uh, make sure you swing over to Joe Bean either online or stop over the shop and grab a, grab bags. But the subscription method, I think, is something that you're pushing a lot right now. So that's at JoeBeanRoasters.com, right? Yeah, it helps us. Uh, the more people we can have signed up for that, it helps us feel more confident about pre-committing to green coffee, which in turn helps farmers feel more confident about hiring pickers and dedicating resources to those high-scoring coffees. So it just 
the more pre-planning everyone can have, it's super useful. Um, so it's an awesome way to help support us and help us support the people that we buy from. Awesome. Well, Ben, it was nice to talk to you. And as we transition out of this into this recording from uh, a few months ago, uh, this is this will be a this was a really good conversation with Ben and Ben uh, Ben uh, Ben Weiner from Gold Mountain Coffee in Nicaragua, which uh, helps to provide some of the you know the best coffees that Joe Bean gets every year the Don Rojera and Isabella coffees and some other ones as well. So it's truly fantastic stuff, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Ben, thanks for joining me on uh, on this little prelude and modern update before we get to this uh, informative but a little bit dated conversation. Beautiful. Thanks, brother. Appreciate Thanks, man. It. Peace. And we're back with another episode of the Food About Town podcast. We're here on a beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, I suppose it's, wait a second, it's actually fall, so a beautiful fall Sunday morning. And I'm here with two Bens, which I don't think I've really ever said that I'm here with two Bens, but here we are. And why don't you introduce yourself, gentlemen? Uh, hi, I'm Ben Turiano. I'm one of the owners of Joe Bean Roasters. Hi, Ben. Hi. I've seen you here before. I, I've been here before. Okay, good. And the other Ben. And I'm Ben Weiner, the founder of Gold Mountain Coffee Growers. So Nicaragua. beautiful. So we're here uh, the day after the uh, Joe Bean. What would you call that? Was that a grand opening? Yeah, we've been working on our new space for uh, almost a year at this point. So figure it's ready to actually be open officially yeah i mean uh, other than the uh many times i've been in for coffee on saturdays yeah those didn't count no <laughs> it was soft opening up until then yeah there is more construction dust around there's still some construction dust but less construction <laughs> so um for the grand opening um uh ben from ben from joe bean had ben from gold mountain come in to uh show off some of the new coffees that came in so we're going to talk all about Gold Mountain Coffee coffee Growers. I'm going to get the terminology right as we go on. But before we do, let's uh, just say a few words about the new space at Joe Bean Coffee Roasters and talk about where it's located and where you can stop in. Yeah, we're uh, we're in the North Winton Village area. We're uh, kind of close to where Blossom and Winton intersects by the, uh, by the new Aldi's building in that Blossom Business Center area. Uh, it's more of an open concept we're doing, so you can see our green storage, our roasting, all of our packaging. It's all in the same space that you'd come in, get drinks, and kind of interface with us. And we're trying to do more of a show-don't-tell kind of philosophy, so uh, hopefully highlighting a lot of the choices we make when we're sourcing coffees, when we're roasting coffees, kind of this whole world that exists behind the scenes that you might not know about otherwise. Yeah, which is pretty exciting stuff, and a lot of what we're going to try and talk about today is the sourcing, really what goes into the coffees that we enjoy at uh, at Joe Bean and other quality establishments that source with uh, source with intent. So, um, one, I do love the new space at Joe Bean. Obviously, I'm a bit of a sycophant, so um, you can take everything I say with a bit of a grain of salt, but I've been enjoying the new space and the new coffees that we were tasting yesterday at the grand opening were pretty fantastic and these came from farms that um you're associated with right ben ben weiner yeah so gold mountain coffee growers is a group of coffee farmers in nicaragua we have our own farm and we also work with other small farmers 
and the social enterprise that I founded, Gold Mountain Coffee Growers, connects all of our farms directly with coffee roasters, including Joe Bean, who we've been working with since right near our founding more than a decade ago. So yeah, let's 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 take a step back and talk about Gold Mountain. How did it actually start and what drove you to actually travel halfway across the world to uh, you know, grow coffee? So I did my thesis research in Nicaragua many years ago in 2002. And a few years after that, bought a coffee farm in Nicaragua. So just out of interest, I'm yeah. going to stop. Yeah. So what takes somebody to Nicaragua for a thesis? What, what school were you going to and what were you studying? I was studying political science at Washington University in St. Louis. Okay. And I wanted to do some studies somewhere where I thought that the result of my research could have a positive impact. Yeah, it's a little bit harder to have political things make a huge impact. I mean, here in the U.S., like, there's things are, I guess, more stable, I suppose, in comparison. Yeah, this particular research wasn't on politics, but rather on policy, public policies, and trying to find out how you could have less poverty and have people increase their income. In this case, I ended up learning a ton about coffee because Nicaragua's economy runs in a huge part on coffee. And I saw all of these bottlenecks in the industry and ways that if you simply connected farmers more directly with markets, that you could completely change their lives and the lives of the whole community. So before you went down, was coffee something that coffee something you just had or was it something you were already somewhat interested in before you went down to Nicaragua for the first time? I have gone from not knowing that much about coffee to knowing maybe too much about coffee now <laughs> from being a Q grader, which is like a sommelier before coffee. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that yeah. a little bit as well. Yeah, I, and now I'm also an expert on processing, on cultivating on a lot of different topics in in coffee. Right, going it's from somebody, quite a journey. Going from somebody that probably just drank it at a coffee shop and then didn't really think about it much afterwards. Yep. Yeah. Which I can say generally is what most people most people will do here um, in the US, regardless of the kind of establishment that they frequent, is coffee is a source of fuel in the day and maybe you get some enjoyment out of it. Yep. I think this is a good opportunity to take a step back and look at the whole process and talk through um, talk through the implications of where our coffee's coming from and what that means to all the people involved in the process. Sure. So you end up down there, you're writing a paper, and then, you know, writing a paper, meaning a thesis. Um, <laughs> but then you, what's the next steps? How does that go from writing a thesis to ending up back there? So I had an interlude working five and a half years as a foreign policy advisor in the U.S. Senate, working on international policy. I'm a lawyer. I got a law degree. But I kept getting drawn back to Nicaragua and to trying to improve people's lives because I've always been about social impact. And so I bought this coffee farm, joined a local co-op, and immediately many members of the co-op started coming to me and saying, oh, through the certifications of this co-op and the traditional methods, we can't even feed our families. We, we can't earn a living through coffee. Can you help us connect with markets? And so what I did was 
organized and found Gold Mountain Coffee Growers in order to have a high impact and fight poverty, but through the quality of coffee, not just as a charity product. We knew that this coffee had to be the best around, and Joe Bean actually won a good food award um, with one of our coffees, and that's a very prestigious, very difficult to win award. Just this year, Roasters won 26 awards with our coffee in the um, Golden Bean North America roasting competition. That's awesome. Yeah, so these are top-notch coffees, and that's what it takes through our particular model in order to have a positive impact through the coffee. Let's talk about the education part of that then, because you're working through any number of different challenges on education. And I think that's a big part of getting people here aware about what this all means. But you're talking about education on any number of different topics in the place where you're growing it in Nicaragua as well. So I guess what I'm interested in is not quite a loaded question, but how do you work through all those education points without being as I'm sure you understand, you don't want to be talking down. You don't want to be, you know, you want to be working with everybody in your area because, you know, you're partners in this, in this aspect. You're not the overlord of coffee. You're all working together. How does that process work itself out? Sure. Well, I'm the only American in Gold Mountain Coffee Growers and our entire staff in Nicaragua is Nicaraguan from our manager down to, um, not down, really up to a picker, everybody, and to a driver, everyone that's involved with all of the logistics that we do. In terms of education, we have our own farm, so that has been extremely valuable in giving us the credibility, but more than anything, the experience to work with fellow coffee farmers on quality. We get the quality way up there on our farm through more techniques than I could ever describe in an hour. We can try. <laughs> of course. Or however much time we have. I could write a whole encyclopedia about all the steps that we do on quality. And people can check it out at our website, goldmountaincoffeegrowers.com. Under the learn section, you can learn an awful lot about coffee processing and what we do. And I definitely want to talk through some yeah. of it because I think it's enlightening to the whole process. Sure, sure. Um, but let's go through. So we're talking about your farm, which uh, I think I was reading uh, Finca Idealista. Yep, Idealista. Okay, and that's that's your farm, mm-hmm. which how the farm started about that same time as when you went down there, and that was the first thing? Yeah, we started our farm in 2007, okay. a few years after my thesis research, and it started out very small. and With, we, e- with existing plants, or were you planting for the first time? It was existing plants of the pacas variety, and then we also, there was a grove of passion fruit in between our two little pieces of land. And we purchased that from the passion fruit farmer and planted when their passion fruit failed, actually. And we planted the Katura variety there. We also had a bunch of Katimor. People looked at us as if we were crazy and we ripped out all of the Katimor, Expl- which drastically ex- cut our harvest. <laughs> Explain yeah. what that means and why. Sure. So Katimor is a lower cupping variety, usually. and High volume, I would assume. Yeah, it's more about just yield. But to me, it tastes almost rotten in the cup. And we were going for a different level. We started, just as we were getting started, speaking with a bunch of roasters and getting advice on the kind of coffees that they valued in their roasteries. And everyone said, yeah, Katimor, not a good variety for quality. So we did... 
the <laughs> unfathomable and we ripped out all of these katimor trees and started planting new pacas and katura trees but it takes people say three years but it's really five years until that tree is producing strongly so that that was a five-year process well it was kind of that's kind of what i was wondering of i'm starting to get more familiar with you know the wine process here in the finger lakes because we're right near a you know world-class wine region and with places starting new new wineries or taking over old vines there's challenges on both sides and i kind of see those comparisons to that process because i'm sure new trees don't necessarily grow the same fruit that old trees do i'm sure you've seen that along the way yeah and we've also added other varieties over time and we've increased the size of our farm buying some adjoining plots where people are growing corn and regular beans never chopping down any forest we actually bought a rainforest just to protect it but any land where we've expanded the farm has always been on land where we're not doing any kind of deforestation. And we've planted varieties from SL28, which is typically grown in Kenya, to yellow Bourbon, Pacamara, yellow and red Pacamara, uh, Geisha, Katuai, Marigo Hipe. Just, we, we just have... to see how it all sticks. Yeah, and... Well, it, it's been very deliberate. So we have a coffee seed bank where we grow rows of many different varieties and any roasters who come visit us can see them and, and taste them. And so we've done experiments with what each variety tastes like, how it grows, its yield to balance yield with taste. And we actually side on the side of taste usually on our farm. And we, you know, we try to create micro lots and even nano lots, but then also some larger volume lots, they're going to have the highest quality taste possible. Let's talk about quantity. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask about like the quantities that are coming off of your farm and uh, mm -hmm. the partner farms, mm -hmm. and then what a general farm in the region would be. So let's say on your farm, what's the kind of lot size, not the nano lots, because I mm -hmm. could be obviously very, I mean, very small mm -hmm. but what's what's a typical micro lot coming off of one of these farms let's say the uh one of the coffees we had yesterday the um uh, i think it was don roger and uh, isabella uh tropical symphony yeah the tropical if I remember, fruit symphony tropical fruit symphony yep like that let's talk about like that lot because one it's one of joe bean's signature coffees every year um, one of my absolute favorites i didn't mark it on the on the board yesterday but i would have <laughs> marked it on the board during our cupping um, let's talk about that lot. Um, how big would that be every season? That lot varies depending on the weather of a course. bit because so they, Don Roger and his wife, Isabel take that coffee, uh, from their Katura, their Bourbon, their Havanica and Pachi varieties. And so you get a very complex cup just because of the coffee varieties themselves and then on top of that, they're processing it as a natural processed coffee. For those listening who don't know what that is, usually coffee grows inside a cherry. And so usually you would remove the cherry and then ferment and wash the coffee. And that's the wash process. But in a natural process... And the fermenting generally is done. That's an open air fermentation or is that contained? Pe people are doing all kinds of ways now. But for the most part in the world, it's usually open air. Okay. And... This process of the Tropical Fruit Symphony that Joe Bean has is a natural process. So they're taking the whole coffee cherry and then drying it for approximately 34 days. And as 
the coffee is drying inside the cherry, which is typically you know a process that's done more in Africa than than in Latin America, the fruit adds a really fruity flavor to the bean. Some of it seeps right into the bean. And in this particular case, we just get this explosion of wonderful tropical fruits from mango to pineapple to guava. Yesterday, I tasted some peach when I tried it as an espresso, which mm. was really fun. And then it's also very sweet and sugary because it's picked when it's really nice and ripe. Yeah. So let's let's talk about from the roaster side for a minute. This is um, a relationship that has been, like you said, for about 10 years now. And this specific coffee I've been tasting pretty much the whole time it's been going on. Um, this direct trade relationship, how has that worked for you? And how has that built over time? Well, so we got connected with Ben about 10 years ago when we started. We met at a, uh, a like a real hippie roasters retreat. It wasn't officially part of the SCA. It was just out on some person's property. Right, too much organization. Everyone camped out. <laughs> the, yeah, the whole thing was a cool scenario. So we connected and, and kind of shared some similar value sets, it seemed like. So we started bringing in coffee from you guys. Um, and to start, we were doing the Don Rogers Pachi Friedel, um, which you know had these really beautiful kind of apple characteristics, these really nice caramely characteristics. And I think we brought that in for a few years. And then it was after a few years of buying that. we won that. the Good Food Awards with that. And we won the Good Food Awards. Yeah, it was a really fantastic coffee. Um, but it was after a couple of years of buying that from you that uh, you kind of let us know that he had been working on some natural processes. Would we like to try and taste some of those? And the first year that we bought that, that was just such a overwhelming experience, getting to taste that and see how big and fruity and dynamic it was. Um, so I think we've brought that in every year for the past eight years or whatever it's been. Wow. Um, yeah. And that's just consistently one of our favorite coffees we bring in every year. And yeah. the fact that we can get it every year and I know I'm going to buy it every year and I'm telling Ben that we're buying it every year and it's consistently good year after year, you know, there's a lot of, uh, trust built into that and that, that trust kind of helps lead to a lot more, uh, just like dependable income for everyone, right? Well, and let's let's talk about that for a second. I think that's a that's a great uh, great little pivot. There is these kind of relationships, like uh, Ben Turiano was saying, is consistency for everybody. How does that affect that farm? You know, the uh, Don Rojero and Isabel farm in in Nicaragua, where there's this consistency of these kind of relationships. It, sure. it might be worth mentioning too that most the the way most coffees purchased at, at least on like a smaller roaster scale, most people are purchasing coffee that's come in that was traded on a differential of the the C market price. It came into the importer, the importer marks it up, they put it on their spot coffee list, and then a roaster just kind of peruses and buys that list. So it's all very retroactive, not happening. Uh, beforehand so doing kind of more futures oriented purchasing is more the con you know the context of what this is about so I, I know there was a lot of technical stuff there so i guess let's dumb that down just a little yeah. bit so so my interpretation of that is like most most uh growing most people who are roasting here are buying through u.s distributors who are buying from co-ops and other places in 
large exporters, yeah. And it's usually larger quantities or even smaller quantities, but it's filtered through two or three different layers Mm -hmm. to get to a roaster here in the U.S. Uh, I would assume two or three probably minimum layers to get to the U.S. And these coffees are coming directly from our farming group, Gold Mountain Coffee Growers. So Don Roger and Isabel have Joe Bean and a few other roasters throughout the country that they have had direct relationships with now for years and that level of predictability allows us to ensure that they get financing we've now built out a financing mechanism through gold mountain so that our farming group can have stable income when the coffee is even just a flower on the tree and there are many farmers who would have failed by now if they hadn't had access to credit right now in nicaragua getting loans from a bank is nearly impossible for most people now even for the bigger farmers it used to be if you were a big farmer you could have access to credit, and if you were a little farmer, you were basically on the verge of failure all the time. And I'm, ass- I'm assuming that the prevailing interest rates are um, extreme down yeah. there at uh, most financial institutions. Yeah, they're high in a bank, but banks are very def- uh, they're, they're being very close with their funds and, and not giving out funds easily. But if you were a small farmer, historically, you just couldn't work with almost any bank. And if you got a loan, it might be at 100% interest rate. I know that sounds crazy, but you go talk wow. to a loan shark and say, I'm going to pay you in coffee. And the loan shark would tell you, okay, when you pay me back, you're going to have to give me double the value of the loan that I'm giving you now. And so we created a way that's either interest-free or low interest, depending on risk levels, with farmers for them to be able to finance their crops. And it, it makes a difference in their lives. Like I said, many of them would have failed. And now there's a, actually an international price crisis. And so there are more farmers wanting to work with us, willing to take on the quality challenge and work with our quality teams who stand on every single farm during picking. Because if they sell locally right now, not only is there not access to credit or just loan shark uh, options, but the international price is so low, which the other Ben here, Ben Triana, started to describe, that if they sell through those mechanisms, they're selling below the cost of their production. So growing their coffee costs them more than the price at which they can sell their coffee through traditional channels. So we're trying to step in in an even bigger way. And this year we've brought in more coffee direct from farmers to be able to connect more of the coffee to roasters and have fewer farms fail in a very challenging environment. We're doing that all through quality, but for it to work, roasters like Joe Bean, who are appreciating quality and other roasters throughout the country and world, because we can ship anywhere, need to appreciate the quality levels that are really award-winning quality levels that we're achieving as a farming group. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's success through intention and trying to, you know, you're elevating coffee in a lot of ways, but it's like we were talking about, this is that education portion that, you know, the farmers are now coming to you after seeing some success from other farmers and now pushing this out to other people to see, hey, this this whole process is important because of the people involved. Um, and I just want to go back real quick to um, volume-wise before I forget, because sure. I'll forget to go back to it. So when when we're talking about volume for this these kind of coffees, how many? What are we talking oh, about right. quantity wise? 
so this particular lot that Jobin has, I, I'd have to go back and check, but I don't think it has more than 40 something bags. That's uh, so people can define a micro lot however they want. For some people, it might be 10 bags. For some people, it might be 50. I'd put it around 40 something and we might still call it a micro lot. Um, and then a nano lot, we might call anywhere from less than a bag to up to four bag bags maximum. being 50 pounds 152 pound bags 150 okay yep. which 152 pounds might sound like a lot of coffee but some roasters batch sizes are 10 20 30 pounds so just a few roasts and they've roasted through that bag gotcha so yeah let's let's talk for a second about let's talk about people because that's a big aspect of what you're doing and how these kind of direct relationships can benefit the whole process but the process is people. Coffee is a labor-intensive process. And as we were talking about before, we're very disconnected from our agricultural processes here in general. And this kind of transparency and sourcing is fascinating to me, but also indicative of the problems that the whole process has. So let's talk about what it takes people-wise to grow coffee and bring it here to the U.S. I'll try to <laughs> in, in an expedited as, fashion, yeah, as much as possible because we could write more than an encyclopedia on this topic, and yeah. we could talk, we could create a whole podcast just on this topic. Oh, absolutely! But basically, here here goes. I'll try to be quick. <laughs> you grow the coffee for five years. You harvest the coffee in a significant way. In this case, with extreme attention yeah. to detail. So I'm going to talk stuff for a second. Sure. Five years. Yeah. Is that how long it takes a coffee cherry to start and finish? After three years, the coffee is now plant that starts yeah. out as just a seed, is now a tree and starts to produce, but a very small harvest. Okay. Four years, somewhat significant. Five years is a significant harvest. Okay. So we might actually get a micro lot after five years and not just a nano lot. So you plant the coffee. Five years, now you're producing. During that whole um, cultivating time, we... In our case, use machetes instead of herbicides to control weeds. We're fertilizing, we're trimming the coffee, we're regulating shade, using shade. Then we harvest. We have our own ripeness team stand there during picking to make sure that the coffee is perfectly ripe. And we, coffee is hand-picked in this case. In this case, yeah. In some places in the world, it's not hand-picked. Nicaragua is just about all hand-picked. Is that geography-wise because it really doesn't facilitate it or just because there's no infrastructure for it? Yeah, some of these slopes are quite steep. And also the level of development in Nicaragua has a far way to go to be more developed. So mm. we're not advanced like Brazil. We don't have flat land where we grow coffee where you could use have tractors pick. It, it's also worth noting that coffee's not ripening, ripening uniformly. So you you're have cherries that are underripe, ripe, or potentially overripe all simultaneously. On the same plant. Right. So having pickers go through <laughs> mm -hmm. is how you select what's correct and what's not correct. So it's not like a harvest weekend. It's a harvest. It's a continual harvest through a time period. Right. It's a process. It takes months. Wow. So then we've picked the cherries. In our case, this is not most places and most entities, we put the coffee either on a raised bed or a tarp, and we sort through the cherries to make sure that they're all this is another second check to make sure that they're perfectly ripe. We take out any that aren't perfectly ripe. Then we depulp the coffee. What that means is, so coffee grows on a tree inside a cherry. We remove the cherry, 
uh, by putting it through a depulper. It's just a machine and the coffee goes through a narrow passage that squeezes off the cherry. Then the coffee now looks closer to what we're all used to seeing as a coffee bean, but it's not yet roasted. And it has this sticky stuff on it, which is the meat inside the fruit called mucilage. For that to come off, it needs to ferment. So we ferment it anywhere between 18 and 48 hours, depending on the farm, the sugar levels, the weather. After that, we get it, we, we get the, the mucilage off by putting it in a washing channel. And we wash the coffee in water and also some defects float to the top. Those are called floaters. Then in our case, again, this is not what most places do. We put it all on raised beds. We've built over a thousand raised beds to be drying coffee effectively. Those allow air to circulate underneath because the coffee is drying on a screen and the sun to hit it from above. And we rotate it constantly just about every hour after at least 14 days in the case of washed coffee. And then for some other processes, it might take more like 18 or even 34 days in the case of a natural process. The coffee is dry and we have to store it for two months in a bag so that if one bean has a little bit higher moisture content and one bean has a lower moisture content, they equalize. And that's called reposo or rest. And that's after, so after that whole, you know, Mm -hmm. the initial process that, if anybody ever talks about process, that's where they'll think it stops. Mm-hmm. Now there's an additional period before you can actually sell it. Oh, yeah. And we're we're very serious about quality. So many places would just get their coffee to market instead of waiting those two months. But we know that the coffee is going to roast better in the machines of roasters if it has equal moisture distribution. Because imagine that you are cooking whatever it might be and one... Either that it's at a different, um, that your product that you're cooking has different moisture contents. Well, one of them is going to cook quicker and one less quick. And so we want roasters to have a nice even roasting experience so that none of the coffee is going to burn or be under roasted. Water is a big effect on uh, the rate of sugar browning. That makes complete sense. The degree of moisture inside a bean affects the way the sugars break down really tremendously. Yeah. I mean, that, that ties with all other aspects of cooking, you know, let's say you're cooking, you know, a steak. That's the reason now they say you dry off the surface so you can get your Maillard reaction going as fast as possible because boiling off water is very inefficient from an energy perspective. It takes a lot of energy to boil off water before you can get to the point where you're caramelizing sugars. Right. Which is, is really the key part of making coffee delicious in a lot of ways. Make it brown. <laughs> <laughs> so there's more. Of, of course. Then we hull the coffee. So it depends on the process, just how much of the fruit is on the bean at this point. But regardless, we put, whether it be a wash process, honey process, or natural process, or some other process, we put it all through a hulling machine. And this takes the parchment, which is nature's natural packaging. It's a paper-like layer around the bean off it removes it after it goes through the huller it goes through a screen size sorter so if we wanted to remove really big or really small beans or separate out certain sizes we could do that with the screen size sorter and then it goes through something called a density sorter which removes beans that aren't dense it's a giant table that vibrates and pushes the coffee in one direction and then air pushes the coffee in the other direction if you look on our website in the learn section you can see pictures of this goldmountaincoffeegrowers.com <laughs> and but that's not enough we don't stop oh, of there. course not we then 
if we want, can put the coffee through an optical light sorter, which would remove certain defects. But, and, and that's what most places do, or they either do nothing or, or do that. But in our case, we found that that's not enough to make the coffee as incredibly clean as we want. So we then put the coffee on conveyor belts and about 80 people sift through the coffee. Not, I wouldn't even call it sifting because we put it on the conveyor belt so thin in our case. And again, that's atypical of standard practices if someone were even to still be using conveyor belts nowadays, which very few people are. And we remove any defects that we can see. Then we even have UV lights behind a curtain at the end of the conveyor belt to remove any beans that shine because they maybe have some mucilage left. For those who are just tuning in, mucilage is the meat that is of the fruit that coffee grows in. And we, that should be off of it at this point. If it's still glowing behind the curtain, it's a wash process, then that would be a bad thing and we would remove it. So... Every single one of those steps you talked about. And those has, are just some. That was the short version. But every single one of those steps and more have people involved. These aren't yes. pure machine processes. There's always people involved. Yep. And all these people need to get paid yes. along the way. Yes. This is an expensive process. And we found ways to be more efficient with the larger lots so that we can have volume options that aren't too expensive for roasters. But this isn't free. And the more that the public and roasters, coffee shops, everyone out there who enjoys coffee can understand the amount of people and processes that are behind their cup of coffee, the better the coffee industry can be to appreciate more what's going on at origin and placing a value on that. Right. And I think this one of the reasons I've kind of latched on to coffee is a great topic to talk about sourcing is because we can take a direct path in the in the um, in the case of Gold Mountain Coffee, we can look at it and say, hey, this is a drive from quality to benefiting people's lives through quality, which, I mean, as a nerd, I love that because that focus can turn into benefits to us because we get to enjoy an amazing cup of coffee, you know, roasted from, you know, Joe Bean or somebody like that. But we can also make an impact through doing that and supporting places that are making people's lives better. Yeah, through people's purchasing decisions, not just roasters, but the whole public out there in Rochester, New York, or beyond who might be listening, the cup of coffee that they choose to drink in the morning can make a huge impact on people's lives. So that simple choice of if they decide to ask their roaster, hey, where did this coffee come from? Have you, it might sound like a joke from Portlandia, but <laughs> do you know the farmer of this coffee? And in the case of Ben Toriano, who's sitting next to me, he does. And their family knows them and they've carried that coffee for years and they follow up and check in on, on that family. And they've been there and asked all kinds of questions and made sure that it's truly ethical sourcing. So if consumers would all ask those questions, then they could really change the world through the simple act of choosing what coffee they're drinking in the morning. Yeah. So I think this is, yeah, a great example of this conscious capitalism that we is, there's a lot of benefits to it if you can do the research and it, it can be overwhelming at times. And we, I think we all appreciate that and understand how overwhelming this can be. We've talked about just a small portion of the process and it's a lot to absorb. So don't be afraid to ask questions. And if you want to learn People like Ben Turiano at Joe Bean will be happy to try and 
try and get you more information, get more exposed to this, or go to uh, explain the website again, <laughs> Gold Mountain, <laughs> Gold Mountain Coffee Growers dot com. Yep. If you go there and take a look, you'll learn a bit more about the process. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk a little bit more about specialty coffee in general and more about Gold Mountain. So we'll be right back. And we're back with Ben Turiano from Joe Bean Coffee Roasters and Ben Weiner from Gold Mountain Coffee Growers in Nicaragua. And we were finishing up talking through... Uh, talking through some of the some of the people aspects of coffee, but we were talking about quality, and you were talking earlier a little bit about the grading process, which I'm kind of intrigued about. I've spent some time over the last couple of years getting to know some of our uh, local sommelier crew here in town, and you were comparing that uh, Q grading to that sommelier process. Um, Let's talk about that for a little bit. I can't find it fascinating. Sure. So Q graders are certified by the Specialty Coffee uh, Association of now of the world. There used to be one for Europe and one for America. Now they're united. And through the Coffee Quality Institute, which is a branch of the Specialty Coffee Association, to certify the quality of green coffee before it's roasted and then what's actually in the cup, the taste, are there defects to give it a score in terms of different aspects of the cup from fragrance and aroma to body, acidity, which isn't necessarily a negative thing, taste, aftertaste, all, all kinds of different ways of analyzing the, the coffee cup. Okay. And that's all, that process by and large is done through the cupping process? Yeah, so through cupping and also physical grading of the coffee even before it's roasted. So okay. to become a Q grader, I and all other Q graders have to pass 20-something tests where imagine that someone gives you a glass of water and in there is either a level one, two, three, I can't remember, maybe even four, of a certain amount of sugar, of salt, of citric acid, of whatever else it was, sugar, salt, citric acid. I think that there's one more. And we have to say, oh, this little glass of water is a level two salt, a level three sugar, a level one citric acid, all in the same cup. And you have to do, that's just one of the tests. Then we have to triangulate and taste several cups of coffee and say which one of the three is not the same. Then they spike them with different levels of citric acid, of <laughs> phosphoric acid, of malic acid, of acetic acid, which is basically white vinegar. And we have to say which um, are which are the same and which one's different for those as well. We have to cut, test the quality of coffee and all come within a certain range. And if you're an outlier, then you're, you might not pass. We have to say which cup has a defect in it on an enormous table. There might be one, there might be two. If you misidentify and say there's a defect when there isn't or don't identify the defect that actually is there, then you fail. Many, many tests to make sure that we know what we're doing to be able to test the quality of coffee. Yeah, because that sounds sounds like they're not only, you know, not only testing your you know ability to say this is a great coffee or not, they're actually testing your palate abilities 
and the differentials of your palate, which is kind of fascinating in of itself. That's a that's a huge challenge. And actually, one of the challenges talking about food and drink in general is how do you calibrate yourself against somebody else? Because I can tell my what I feel something tastes like, but the tasting process is a very individual thing. So you're also talking about calibration amongst all of the other people who are tasting coffee. Yeah, and some people say, oh, coffee is so subjective, but in, and sometimes it might be, but it also can be objective. And, and there are parts of it that are very objective. And it shouldn't be that Ben Triano across from me tastes a coffee and says, oh, this is a 92, and I say it's an 82. Then we're not at all calibrated. And I would almost say one of us is wrong if it's that drastic a difference (laughs) but if you know i'm saying oh this is an 87 and he's saying an 88 then we're at least in the same range and we're saying okay this is a good coffee and then we can talk about why do we like the body do we like the fragrance the aroma do we think it tastes like apples or oranges and yeah yeah some of those some of those subtleties i think is where some of that i think subjectiveness comes into but I, i find that fascinating because when i've gone through doing some uh, some judging of uh, spirits the last couple of years. Every time we sat down, we tried to calibrate ourselves to, oh, we're running through this kind of flight or this kind of flight to get to get in our heads. How is everybody else perceiving this stuff? And sometimes we, you know, we had some some of those drastic different opinions. But after a little while, you start getting you, you're going to know what somebody's going to say before they say it. Mm-hmm. And I find that fascinating because this crosses over in all these different, all these different categories from spirits to wine to coffee. There's yep. this, this everybody coming together to try and tell people what's good and why. And lest someone brand us coffee snobs for doing so, I would just say, <laughs> so my cue instructor always said, remember when you're tasting the coffee to act as if the farmer is right behind you and take that into account and don't just be smashing a coffee. But if you have a criticism, then try to think about, okay, how can this be improved? So in my case, even before I became a Q grader, I was already tasting about 200 cups of coffee at origin a day. Sometimes on much on nicer days, it you know, might be just a hundred and that's much more doable and bearable. <laughs> but the point has always been, okay, I'm tasting this and I'm tasting a certain level of ferment. Maybe we need to go back to that farm and work hand in hand with that farmer and not just berate them and say, oh, we can't work with you anymore, but rather work hand in hand and say, okay, is there something in the fermenting process that we can change to improve the quality of your coffee? Or does another coffee have a problem that it's not sweet enough? Maybe we just need to pick that riper and we can send one of our ripeness team members. And in our case, they will be there if we're working with you to help ensure that that coffee comes out great. And so from that approach of working hand in hand with farmers on quality, we're able to bring up the board from a grass roots level rather than the model of many enormous exporters around us that we see where they're just cupping through thousands of coffees and millions of pounds, separating out some coffee, calling it better. And then the rich people are making a killing on it, but the economically challenged farmers aren't seeing any benefit. We're trying to raise up all farmers and farming communities through quality, fighting poverty through quality. Yeah. When I think that's when you're talking about the, that coordinated effort to be um, to be critical, but 
critical with you know constructive criticism is is beneficial to lots of different either businesses or obviously communities in the case of people you're working with. But I think it's something we all need to take a step back on sometimes because snobbery is, you know, we all really care about quality. And I think we can all get in that loop. And I've, when I talk to people, you know, sometimes I can be overly critical. It does happen. Um, <laughs> and I think we all do, those of us that really care about quality. But keeping that always in our heads, that constructive criticism is beneficial to everybody as long as people are willing to to listen to constructive criticism those spent the time to become certified graders or those that you know want to offer real opinions with with backing there's there's benefit to that but we can all get into the loop of being snarky and everything else and it's it's not helping anybody not none not at the least ourselves it's not helping ourselves get better and learn how to interact with people in a better way it was really cool at Jobian yesterday for me to see so many customers come over and taste the coffees and they were really into it and they were getting into noting the flavors. And so there was a washed coffee from Don Francisco and Blanca Nieve that's yellow Katura and yellow Katuai. And so Ben Triano across from me put that one out and then put out one called the Pacamara Collaborative, which is this rare variety called Pacamara that has these apple notes to it and then the tropical fruit symphony that's super fruity and and tropical and so people were really noticing the difference and they were learning about the farmers they're asking great questions so it's really cool to see that the community of Rochester that comes into Joe Bean was actually a very caring caring community and really does seem to appreciate coffee and some of them that came in maybe not knowing as much about what's behind coffee were paying attention and, and learning right there. So that was a really th beautiful thing to see that Joe Bean is making happen. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about education for a minute, uh, Ben Turiano, because we were talking about education on the, you know, the grower side of things, the production side of things. Um, let's talk about education on the, you know, on the U.S. side, at the, at the roaster side. That's something I know Joe Bean has focused on since the beginnings. But how is that evolving and how do you see that moving forward here you know, at the, at the roastery? Well, I mean, we're doing a lot of it right now. Uh, what we're really trying to set up our place is, is like I said earlier, more of a show don't tell type operation. Yeah. So for me to say, we work with these amazing farmers and we have these direct relationships and we're paying people, you know, fair wages and we're bringing in these amazing coffees. You might say, okay, that's great. Other guy down the street says that too. Right. But if we can bring in someone like Ben, who's down there and is connected with everyone and is the one we're doing our purchasing through, that's way more significant, right? Absolutely. So we're trying to bring in more guests. We're trying to uh, do very, uh, I guess, immersive type demonstrations where people can get their hands in. And it's hopefully really less about me talking and explaining and more about people kind of discovering things for themselves and just getting to be totally immersed in this huge world that specialty coffee is. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, you know, there's a, there's groups that really want to jump in and learn. And there's a lot of opportunity with those people to be, I think in the best possible way, evangelists for this, for this whole specialty coffee experience. And then there's a lot of people that have never been exposed to this 
and that's its own challenge. For sure. Well, especially yesterday, you know, we've been doing a soft open for a while, so we had a lot of regulars coming through, but we had a lot of first-timers come in who had no experience with us, who had no experience with specialty coffee, and for those people to come up and be tasting things out of cupping bowls and asking really intelligent, engaged questions, that's just tremendously exciting for me to see. In, in my mind, that says, okay, it's not that any of this content is difficult to understand. It's just that maybe it was presented in a way that didn't make it easy to grasp right away. So if you can present things simply and in a way that kind of prompts you to maybe think about it and ask questions, then those opportunities are just easier to find for people. Yeah. And, f- and from a farming perspective, it's so heartening and fulfilling to see the public appreciating in that cup yesterday all of the work that's there that's behind that cup and all of the people and efforts and even environmental protection in our case that's behind that cup it was just an incredible thing to see yeah one i I love when you see that you know you were talking about the side by side of those three you know amazing coffees but people really you're right people really diving in but i think sometimes it takes that side by side to see oh there are differences it doesn't just taste like coffee oh for sure I think the only way we learn is by contrast. Yeah. Because you can say, oh, wait a minute. Okay, these are different. Okay, why? Why Why are they different? I. All right, maybe I'm going to have to find descriptors to name those things. Or why? I now conceptually want to know why this one smells and tastes really different. What made it do that? Is that how it was grown? Is that where it was grown? Is that the varietals? Is that the processing? Is that the roasting? Is that the brewing? Like, what? what did you do to make this thing present different right and the 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 crazy and exciting thing is that the answer to all those questions is yes yeah (laughs) (laughs) is every every one of those things matters and like i was saying before that's where this whole experience from you know learning about the process to learning about you know the brewing process to the roasting process is overwhelming and that's from somebody who you know I've, i've spent some time trying to learn about this stuff and it's, it takes a deft touch to get people engaged and then get them asking those cool questions. And it's it's a slow roll. You can't get somebody to a level where they're, you know, grading and cupping immediately without going through all those intermediate steps. It's the biggest challenge, I think, that we all have in trying to get people exposed to this stuff, which I find exciting and challenging all at the same time. Well, I, I think it's a lot more accessible now than it used to be. Yeah, for sure. Um there's especially the SEAs laid out a lot of very clear to follow instructions. Um, so, you know, we've gotten to do a bunch of these classes that are involved in the queue tasting, and we're actually going to be uh, basically running open to the public versions of these things in January. Oh, very cool. Yeah, if you stay posted. Oh, um, I, I think I will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they're really easy, they're, they don't involve anything that's expensive or hard to obtain. And it's just a matter of setting it up and walking through it. And all those steps are really clearly laid out. So you just got to do it. Yeah. That's really cool. That's uh, very exciting. It's all these all these things. I mean, I love training my palate. I love trying to learn about stuff. And this, this is just another great opportunity to dive into something in more detail. Um, one of the things I did want to cover, though, is something I think was new this year, but was kind of illuminating and an important thing was on the packaging of the new coffees from uh, Don Francisco and uh, uh, Don Roher were the names of their wives. 
was uh, Isabella in the case of uh, Don Roher and uh, uh, Blanca Nieve yeah. mm-hmm. on uh, Don Francisco. Seems like that was an intentional choice uh, from all different aspects. This I think it was this year, right? Yeah, we've had it for many years. On some of them, we're trying to put it on every single bag because women people talk about women in coffee and first of all there's some coffees from partner farmers who that where the coffees are 100 percent produced by women owners of coffee farms there's a maria velasquez this year is um, one in particular that comes to mind who produces this incredible yellow katura um, and red katura lot that that's just awesome and even if the woman isn't in the field doing the agronomy type work and but is maybe running the house and making sure that there are meals for all of the workers, making sure that the workers get paid in many cases. There are many cases where the husband who's out there doing a lot of manual work doesn't know how to read and write or do much math. And so the female head of household will be keeping the ledgers and keeping the business running and so it's not just credit it's it's uh, in spanish we'd say imprescindible an absolutely integral part of the success of these farms is the the work in place of women there and there's no limit on what they can do there never should be and they need to be getting the credit yeah, and I was I was really pleased to see that, and I think that you know getting the explanation and you know not just seeing the one name on there because it's as we talked about it's never just one person, but that mm. these people this is a partnership of people running this whole infrastructure. I think is really um, encouraging to see that on the bags. And also, Gold Mountain Coffee Growers has computing classes for women. We first put out a call for the kids of coffee farmers to be able to come to our free computing classes. And unfortunately, there's a very strong machista culture in Nicaragua, and parents only sent their boys. We didn't have one female student show up for these classes. Well, that's kind of depressing. It was, yeah, um, not the way that it should be. And so we changed the way that we run the classes, and now it's 100% female classes. And by doing that, we are empowering women to be able to get farther ahead in society. We're trying to change that machista culture and give women more opportunities. We take the female students to a local university. They're usually younger than university age. And so we take them to university and have the head of the university speak to them about all the different options so they can know how it works if they want to go and study and go further. And so we try to also in our hiring empower women by giving preference when we're hiring we have female managers and supervisors in nicaragua we're not just paying lip service to it we're actually doing it well and that makes all the difference i mean exposure is one thing but you know actual you know actual hiring and paying and doing all that stuff is kind of where the rubber meets the road isn't it yep um so i just i just wanted to highlight that i found it you know, enlightening to see it, and it brings up a lot of good conversations about these things that we all need to focus on. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to ask was regarding your farm specifically. We've talked a lot about the partners, but uh, Finca Idealista, mm-hmm. your farm. Mm-hmm. What's the thing right now that you're doing on your farm? 
what's the biggest change or what's the thing you're most excited about that you're working on on your farm specifically? We're growing a lot of really cool varieties. So what gets me, gets me most excited about Finca Idealista is that we bought a rainforest just to protect it. We're not deforesting any place. We have volcanic filters that clean water after it's used to wash coffee so that we're not polluting the environment as a result of growing coffee. We have a chicken house that the chickens go in at night that's above our compost area to have their droppings infuse nitrogen into our coffee pulp compost area. And then we use that as natural fertilizer. We're using machetes instead of herbicides. So we're trying to be environmentally friendly, do as much biodynamic farming as possible. And then on top of all of that, we're planting these incredibly high cupping, awesome tasting varieties from geisha, which is kind of a classic high cupping coffee, but it's very hard to grow, to yellow pacamara that's going to have its first harvest in 2020. So that's really exciting. I was going to say, how, how, are those, how are those going right now? I mean, it's there's got to be challenges in mm-hmm. doing that. They're a process. And so for the ones that we planted more recently, for example, the SL28, we can't have you guys taste that for at least another three years. <laughs> There'll be a small harvest of it. But the yellow pacamara is starting to come online this year. This will be about the third year, I want to say, for that one. So it's going to have its first somewhat significant harvest. I'd call it a nano lot. Maybe we'll get just a few bags. And then the yellow bourbon should be starting for the first time. Last year, we had a roaster from South Africa come and taste the yellow bourbon blind. He didn't know what it was. It was just on a table as a number because we do our cuppings blind to test the quality. We both cupped it in the 90s and he didn't even know what it was. And he said, I want that. I'll take all of what it is. I don't care about the price. And I had to, I looked it up what the number was and had to say to him, oh, sorry, you just drank the entire harvest, <laughs> but, but come back next year and, yeah. and it'll be online. And so that's starting to come into, uh, you know, that'll be harvesting this year. Some red pacamara is in the future. And then we've always had our pacas, which is this really great variety that has these mandarin orange sweet notes to it. And our katura, which has some sweetly, uh, similarly sweetly citric notes to it. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, you're, you're also, you're doing these small lots and you're doing some larger lots, I assume, on your farm as well. Yeah. Our farm produces, I want to say a little bit of more than a half container of coffee. A container is 280 bags. Okay. Each bag is 152 pounds. So you can do the math. Maybe it's mm-hmm. more than 20,000 pounds. And that might sound like a lot, but that's actually small. In order to have scale, some farms need multiple containers of 42,500 or so pounds per container. And so we're actually on the smaller side of Nicaragua. But it's it's really, like I said, it's really challenging to be a coffee farmer. The giant plantation next to us failed and they're not going to have any harvest this year they're not even going to pick or have Hmm. workers picking and in at the height of their production they probably have more than a thousand pickers and all those people are now out of work so we're trying to stay sustainable economically through quality fighting poverty through quality and we've had a steady you know flow of the same pickers coming back year after year to our farm and they have work and they earn double picking on our farm and it's it's really a time when all these themes that we've been talking about, about roasteries and the public in the U.S. and Europe and the rest of the world 
um, Australia, Asia, even the Mideast now, some of the places that we can ship coffee to, it's important for them to connect directly with these farms. And, and that makes an impact in people's lives. Yeah. Well, I think let's close it out there. I think that's, that's a great way of wrapping this up. This is, there's so much more to come. There's so many more opportunities when you talk about other, you know, farms that are potentially closing down, but these kind of, these kind of steps can maybe help people stay in business. And it all depends on people appreciating where that cup that they're drinking from in the morning comes from. Yeah. Really cool. So, uh, let's, let's, uh, say again where you can, uh, find out more information. So Ben Weiner. So we're Gold Mountain Coffee Growers. You can go to goldmountaincoffeegrowers.com. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at goldmtncoffee. And then I'm here with Ben Triano from Joe Bean. Yep. So joebeanroasters.com or at joebeanroasters at any social media platform. Beautiful. Well, guys, thanks so much for coming over and congratulations on the grand opening of the new Joe Bean Coffee Roasters location. Thank you, sir. And... Can't wait to taste more of these coffees and dive into the bag of Don Rohara and Isabella Tropical Fruit Symphony I've got sitting in my kitchen right now. Awesome. So thanks again, and we'll be back another time on the Food About Town podcast. Thanks so much.